0: Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, April 8th, we're talking financials. I'm your host, Jason Moser. and On today's show, we'll talk about Jamie Dimon's recent letter to shareholders. We'll tackle a listener question in regard to share buybacks. We'll, of course, have one to watch for you today. Uh, But we're starting today with another installment of Between Two Fools. By night, Matt Cochran is a contract writer for fool.com. You've probably heard his name once or twice. And given his penchant for the financial sector, I'm sure you've probably read some of his great takes out there. By day, however, Matt is an economic crimes detective, helping catch the bad guys who, in today's tech-heavy world, have a lot of ways to steal our information. During a recent trip here to Full HQ, Matt and I sat down and talked more about the biggest ways thieves are stealing personal information these days, and what we can do to prevent them from getting ours. OK, Matt, so you have a very interesting work history. We talk all the time about stocks and leadership and stuff here on these shows. But, but your job has given us, I, I think, a lot to talk about today in the world of financial scams, something I'm sure our listeners will love to learn more about. Tell us about how you got to where you are right now, because you've been in law enforcement for some time, right?
1: So, I've been in law enforcement for 13 years, and the last
0: four and a half of those, I've been an economic crimes detective. Economic crimes. Now, as, an, as an economics major, I can appreciate that. Um, now, what is what is, economic crimes? Tell me a little bit about what uh, is
1: so that. So it's mostly uh, like it's mostly your what you, most people would probably casually call white collar crimes: identity theft, credit card thaw- fraud, uh, money
0: laundering, uh, and, and all types of scams. So, you know, as technology continues to take up more and more of our lives, I think these types of scams are just getting easier and easier to pull off is that a fair statement
1: yes so if you put yourselves in, in, in the shoes of a criminal real quick uh the risk reward proposition for let's just call it a, a traditional crime uh or uh one of these types of crimes it, it's just it's just so much uh in favor for doing uh for doing some type of fraudulent activity if i break into a car i'm like I might, I might on a good night get some, some <laughs> yeah. quarters, uh, uh, like a, a cell phone that was left behind or an old GPS system or uh, maybe like some kind of a, a electronic gear uh, for a few hundred bucks, like uh, on a good night. And then I risk uh, leaving – like if I cut myself on the glass, like leaving my blood behind, leaving my fingerprint behind. Someone sees me. Uh, the police see me. I get bit by a dog. <laughs> uh, surveillance video. Uh, you know, but on for these types of crimes that are over the Internet, it, it's so much easier to protect yourself from all those things. You can disguise your IP addresses and things like that, uh, disguise your phone numbers from where you're calling from. Yeah, technology has – one made it a lot harder to catch these types of criminals and two the reward is so much greater if I have if, if I break into your car the most valuable thing I could get is your driver's license or your personal yeah. information because then I can use that to apply for fraudulent credit cards or or uh, or all types of things whereas if I just, break into your car and you left your wallet in it but no personal information just cash.
0: I mean you're out some cash but that's it. It's over. Yeah, you know it's so funny that we're actually sitting here talking about this at this particular time because just in the last probably 3 weeks my wife and I each had our own little individual uh like credit card uh Frauds. I mean, like we had some fraudulent activity on my wife had a little bit of fraudulent activity on her debit card that was linked to our bank account. Thankfully, it was just like a couple of Domino's pizzas and the right. bank caught it and didn't right. pay for it. Um, and then a, a few days later, I had one with my American Express card. And what I noticed, at least with American Express, and, and I think Bank of America also as well, is they're very quick to jump on top of this. And, and I, I noticed, particular, particularly with the American Express uh, people, I mean, they were, the customer service was through-the-roof-good, and they were very quick to make sure that any questions were answered, any problems I had resolved. Uh, so, I mean, I, essentially, at the end of the day, we bore no risk. We didn't lose anything. They made us whole. It was like it never happened. But we're sitting there trying to figure out how in the world did it happen in the first place. And to your point, I mean, it just seems like technology makes it so easy for these people to hide. Yeah, it,
1: it it is, and uh, you know, like I said, you can disguise your IP address. You can disguise your your phone number where you're calling from, and uh, and the reward is just so great. Yeah, like you're not out money, but American Express is, or Bank of America is, and you know we all end up paying those fees, like uh, you know, for our accounts. Sure, know, so. or or higher
0: insurance rates for right. the companies exactly. that are insuring exactly. those companies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody bears the cost somewhere. Right. It all ends up costing right. uh, us us in the end, I guess. All right, I mean that's that's all really neat information. Now you, I think. What I'm really excited is you want to go in here and talk about some some particular scams, some common scams, what they are, how they work, how people can look out for them, and and I know for me, just reading through this, this was a tremendous learning experience. I can't wait for you to tell everybody out there. Let's start out with the first one here. This is called the grandparent scam. What is this, and why does it work? All right. So what happens in the grandparent scam
1: is. Uh, The the scammer will call an elderly male or female, and they'll say – they'll either start off the conversation pretending to be the grandson or granddaughter, and they'll say, hi, granddad. And they'll say, who is this? It's your favorite grandson, Johnny. Yes. And now they hand over the phone to someone else who will be posing as an authority figure. Uh, That could be a doctor who's pretending to be at a faraway hospital. It could be a jail guard. And it usually follows one of two storylines. The first is – your grandson, Johnny, was skiing in Canada and he fell and broke his leg. His health insurance doesn't cover him in overseas or in foreign countries. And so before the hospital can operate, he needs $2,000. And they said, Johnny said, he knew he could count on you to send him that
0: money. <laughs> Just tugging at their no. heartstrings. Tugging on the heartstrings.
1: And then the <laughs> other one is, is uh, you know, he was in a, he was in a, a, a tropical island, a tropical paradise, and uh, he was partying a little too hard and he was uh, drinking and driving uh or 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 whatever and uh he's in jail and he needs bail money and he said he could count on you to send him the money and please he really doesn't want you to tell his parents so please he <laughs> he just said you would send him the money and he would talk to you about it later
0: but please to not tell his parents. Building up that uh, sort of trust there. I'm sharing this with you and no one else. Be my friend here. Help me out. Um, I mean, yeah, emotions as an in investing. I mean, it sounds like emotions can get you pretty much anywhere. What can uh, individuals do to protect themselves from this kind of a scam? So what you have to realize for this scam well,
1: in, in most scams, like it's creating a sense of secrecy and urgency. Uh, like he needs to be operated on. He needs the money quickly or – He's going to be sitting in a jail cell until you send the money. So do it quick. Uh, uh, Like – and also secrecy. Don't tell his parents. He really doesn't (laughs) want his parents to know. He says his dad would just be so mad, you know, and he really doesn't want you to tell tell them because they know if you call his parents, they'll be like – Johnny's not in Canada. <laughs> Johnny wasn't in. Johnny didn't go to Central America for spring break. He, he's studying for his finals class, or or whatever. You know, so they don't want you to talk to anyone, and they want you to act quickly. Uh, and so, what you need to do to protect yourselves is just like one, just take a step back. Like I, when I was talking to one elderly couple uh, who had fallen for this scam. Uh, as soon as they got off the phone, they followed the instructions to the letter. They they went to Western Union. They wired money, and they got back home, and they were eating lunch, and they were talking about it. And that's when all the red flags started coming up. They're like, this doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, he doesn't even ski or or, yeah. or whatever. You know, I, I live in South Florida, so they're like, he's never even seen snow, and he went on a skiing vacation. <laughs> uh, just things like that. Uh, and they started talking about it, and then they called Johnny, and he answers the phone, and he's like, no, I'm I'm studying right now or, you know, I'm in class. What do you need, Grandma? You know, like that kind of thing. And that's when they realized it was a scam. So you want to just take a step back and realize, like, it doesn't have to be this second. You want to talk to people. Don't break that aura of, of secrecy. You know, like call his parents. Call him. You know, if you don't want to tell the parents, uh, and then and then just always like one thing that's very common in scams is just be wary of how you're asking to pay. Like like if it's a hospital that's calling or a jail that's calling, why would they want a cryptocurrency to be paid? Yeah. Why would they want the the number on the back of a gift card uh, to be paid? Why Why would uh. uh why would they want you to wire money? Why can't you write them a check or, or these kinds of things? Like, just be very careful anytime you're being asked to pay in one of those ways.
0: As in investing, no knee-jerk reactions. OK, the next one, this is perfect timing given that we are in the middle of March. Coming up on tax day, before you know it, the IRS tax scam. Tell me what this is.
1: All right. So, again, somebody calls and they say they're from the IRS and you owe – Five thousand dollars in taxes, and if you don't pay right now, we're coming to arrest you. Ugh. And so it plays on like a lot of the same emotions: fear, uh, f- right, fear, and it creates that sense of urgency. You have to pay right now, and if you even hang up this phone, we're coming to arrest you. And um, and you know, like I had, a, I had one victim who, uh, who 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 fell for this scam, and he said, you know, I I wasn't buying it. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. Um, Like I'm kind of familiar with this process. This doesn't make sense. But then they said, and we're not just going to arrest you. We're going to arrest your wife too. And he said all you can imagine from that point on was IRS agents breaking into his wife's work, dragging her away in handcuffs in front of all her friends and how like she would just rather die than go through that. And he said at that point, all I could think about was no matter what, I
0: can't let that happen. And I feel like with this one, really, the key to protecting yourself is just recognizing that we li- we live in a country where, just as you said, I mean, the IRS is not going to come bust down your door and haul you away in cuffs. Particularly if you're sitting there thinking, oh, "What in the world?" I mean, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, committing any tax fraud here or whatever. So, I mean, not only does it sound a little uh, you know, sketchy to begin with, but I mean, very rarely. I mean, you're not going to see a situation where the IRS is just going to come barging into your door, just hauling everybody away.
1: 100%. Yeah. So like, uh, you, you know, one, the IRS will never just call you without sending official mail first. They're not going to contact you through social media. And <laughs> there's a there's a due process. Yep. There's due process for this. And uh, and you always, always have a chance to appeal. They might have questions about your returns. As they'll say, can you come into one of our offices? Or they might send an agent to your house, worst case scenario, where can you explain these? Uh, you know refunds you were asking for or, or whatever, but they're they're not coming
0: to arrest you right away. Innocent until proven guilty. Innocent until proven guilty. Matt. All right. Next up, we've got the lottery scam. Tell us how this one works. So it's a it's a little bit different, but there's still a lot of uh like similar uh it
1: echoes a little bit. Uh, this one doesn't play on fear, but somebody will call you and they say. We're, uh, you know, you won the Jamaican lottery. You won the Publisher's Clearinghouse Prize.
0: Hey, man.
1: And all you have to do to collect your prizes is is pay your taxes on it, you know? So you're going to win $5 million. Just pay your $20,000 in taxes (laughs) and we're going to send you your prize. Uh,
0: You can't do that.
1: No. So, like, uh, again, like, you just have to realize, like, you. You know, if you haven't played the Publisher's Clearinghouse, if you didn't enter your name for this, if you haven't been to Jamaica, you probably did not win the Jamaican lottery. And you never – even if you did win a jackpot, you never have to pay your taxes before you collect. You pay after you collect. Uh, You know, this one doesn't play on fear as much. Uh, It plays on like your – like almost like a sense of greed but just like a sense of hope. Like once – they know like all these common things like – a lot of times it sounds silly to hear these scams because you're not the one being emotionally triggered. But if you really think you won $5 million, you're, if you have $10,000 is standing between you and collecting $5 million, you're not going to let that, that's not going to be the issue. You're just seeing that, that jackpot. You're just seeing like, I can quit my job. I can do this. I can, I can do that. And they know once you have that figure in your head, like, uh, you, those
0: red flags that like this doesn't make sense. Why would I win the Jamaican lottery? You're gonna just override it. Yeah, we we talk about that Warren Buffett quote, you know, regarding greed and fear. Uh, you know, be greedy when others are fearful, and fearful when others are greedy. Because those are two of the most powerful emotions out there. I mean, playing on those two emotions, it's easy for us right now to sit there and see it. But if you're caught in the middle of it, those types of emotions can really take over and make you. Say and do some stupid things.
1: Uh, exactly. Okay. Exactly.
0: Um, okay. Last one up. We've got the blackmail scam. Uh, tell us a little bit about this one and, uh, and and why it works.
1: Yeah. So the blackmail scam. Uh, like you'll you'll just check your inbox one day and there's an email in it and it says, uh, you know, we without you knowing about it, you visited some website and we installed malware on your computer and we're. We took a, Because we installed this malware, we hacked the camera on your computer as you were browsing the internet and we recorded you doing some embarrassing things. And the, what gives it a ring of authenticity is that it'll say, we we were able to ma- install this malware because we know your password. And they'll actually have your password in the email.
0: Yeah. What do you do to protect yourself from something like this? Just throw a piece of tape over your camera and never, <laughs> never use it or what? Oh,
1: that is one thing for sure. <laughs> like if you have a laptop with a camera on it, you might want to keep a cover on it. They yeah. even actually make – covers that you can put on your laptop uh, if if you have a a, a a camera that plugs into your desktop unplug it unless you need it uh, but and just be aware of password security the the reason why these uh, scammers have your have your password is that a lot of time in data breaches like passwords like we don't think about that we think when we hear a data breach and oh, I was a Marriott customer, and when during their breach, uh, you know, my information might have been leaked. Uh, You think about your name, maybe your credit card number, maybe where you stayed for last vacation. You don't think about the password you used for that account. And a lot of times what we do is, because we have so many different accounts these days, there's no way we can keep track of all our passwords. And what a lot of us do is we use the same password for every single account. And if you're one of those people in a data breach, once they have the password for your Marriott account, which really doesn't matter— Once they have a – if this is the same one used for your bank account or your computer password or whatever, um, uh, when when you see that password in the email, it's going to scare you. Like, oh,
0: that is my password. You know, and that's what scares me about Okta just a little bit. Um, A neat business, it's really solving a problem in that we all have like a million and one passwords. We have to remember Okta, I know, is technology built based on security and that's one of their competitive advantages really – I'm of the mindset that if it's man made, it's hackable. You know what I mean? Right. And, and yeah. I just, I mean, at some point or another, it's going to be hacked. So, I mean, yeah, to that point, like, I mean, all of these different passwords to remember. Even if you're using one of those password engines that basically signs into everything for you, remember, change that password on occasion, right? I mean, I think that's one of the nice things with work is you have to change your password every so often here in order to be able to you know, keep it fresh and, and keep it from from being discovered. Right. Yeah. And
1: what you definitely want to use a different password for your accounts. Yeah. And while that seems like an impossible task, uh, there are programs like LastPass I use. I know there's others. Uh, where like it'll generate a unique password for every account. They have a free version. They have a paid version. But yeah, you just want to be
0: aware. Don't use the same password for all your accounts. Good advice. Good advice. Um, Okay. hey, listen, that is all great stuff. Uh, Before we take off, I ask this of all of my Between Two Fools interviews. I want a book recommendation from you, and I got to believe you have at least one good one. But Man, you and I talk stocks a lot on Twitter, so I want to get a stock recommendation from you too. Let's start with the book recommendation first. Okay, you got one yeah. or two of them. I know we're all we're all interested. All right. Well, look. So if you're, what it kind of relates to this topic. If, if you're looking for a good book, uh, "Catch
1: Me If You Can" by Frank Abagnale is that the
0: movie? It's what the yeah. movie
1: was based on. But the book, I mean, just like a lot of times, the book is a million times better. Uh, but yeah, it was the movie that Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio starred in. But it's his true tale, and it has. The audacious scams that this guy <laughs> pulled off was amazing. It's it, There's parts of the book that are hilarious. There are hard, parts of the book that are, are very sad. But then in the, in the end, it's ultimately very redeeming and how he turned around his life and how he used all this knowledge and from pulling off cons for so long. He was actually pretty young when he got caught, but pulling off so many different cons when he was young and how he kind of turned his life around and redeemed himself at the end. It's a great,
0: great book. Interesting. All right. And you got one stock recommendation. I'm going to for one of listeners.
1: your one of your old standbys, Uh-oh. but my favorite stock is Mastercard.
0: Mastercard, I like it. I like it. You know, I was watching the Arnold Palmer Bay Hill Golf Tournament this past weekend. I know exciting TV for everyone, right? But the thing that I kept on gathering from it was every flagstick on every green had the Mastercard logo, and the whole time I'm just watching that thing and ching, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And they've uh, they've done a lot of uh, they've made a lot of acquisitions in uh, recent years that have involved security and things and I personally think, like I have a few articles about this, but like how they might be pulling ahead of Visa in that space, yeah. And so, like Mastercard's my 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 pick.
0: All right, great stuff. Well, Matt, listen, it has been a thrill talking with you. I'm glad you were able to make some time while you're here in town at Fool HQ to stop in the studio and talk with us, Matt Cochran. Everybody, thanks so much. Thanks, Jason. And joining me now in the studio via Skype is my man, certified financial planner Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going?
2: Oh, just great. It's 80 degrees and sunny in
0: South Carolina. Hopefully, it's pretty nice up there. Yeah, that must be contagious. That's about what it's like up here, too. I think we finally got the spring, and it's just in time, right? It's Masters Week for all you golf nerds out there. You know what I'm talking about. Um, It is. (laughs) So, (laughs) we wanted to get in today uh, talking a little bit about uh, J.P. Morgan's J.P. Morgan Chase shareholder letter. Jamie Dimon uh, publishes this letter every year. You know, we talk to to investors all the time about uh, you know things to read and whatnot, and we always love reading shareholder letters uh, from the CEOs of our favorite companies because they. Are just educational, and enlightening. That are always uh, you always learn something from them. I think Warren Buffett's probably the the most obvious suspect there. But you know, when you get letters from from Markel and J P Morgan and Amazon and, and others, a lot of great material out there. But Matt, you put together an article here uh, on Jamie Dimon's most recent letter, and he was talking. It seemed like the theme of the letter was uh, what is holding back economic growth here. Uh, domestically and and you you wrote an article that really keyed in on that so so tell me what were some of your takeaways
2: yeah he listed 11 different things that are um, holding back growth and jamie Diamond knows a thing or two about economics so when he writes a letter like that I take it pretty seriously <laughs> one or two yeah. um and it's really hard to argue with some of it um the big thing that stood out to me was education um, he said our education system is really for lack of a better word failing the U.S. population, we're not doing a good job at educating people to the available jobs. I, I read uh, headlines on on CNBC every other day about how they can't find. There's uh, you know six figure jobs that they just don't have any enough talent for. Yeah, uh, these are like vocational type jobs. Like a lot of people don't know what like a a good electrician makes. It, it's a pretty good living. And uh, we're not when I was in school back in the '80s and '90s. Aging myself a little bit here, I'm sure Jason remembers this too. I mean, it was standard to take things like wood shop, auto shop, things like that. That exists less and less these days. Um, As a, I was a high school teacher up till a few years ago, so I know this very well. They cut all the (laughs) vocational programs out. The old wood shop was being used as as a history classroom in the school I taught at. So if are we training people to be historians? No, <laughs> we want, we need vocational education. We need to collaborate with businesses. This is a big point of, of diamonds that we need to have the schools and businesses work together. So we're educating people to the jobs that are available. Makes sense, right? Sure. Um, but we're not doing that and no one knows, really knows why. Um, and it's something that used to be a big priority of ours, but now, over the past couple of decades, it's been the push, every kid needs to go to college, every kid needs to go to college. Some of the best jobs don't require a college degree, they just need to be taught how to do these things. And we're just not doing it.
0: Yeah, that's a real good point, Matt. I mean, for whatever reason, it just seems like it's a—it's uh, all about college and, and not about all of those different types of of careers that are out there that may not necessarily require a college degree these days. Uh, what else struck you from the letter?
2: Um, there's a bunch of just like kind of common sense things that he brought up, like infrastructure has been a huge, not just um, in the political spectrum, but just in general, people like people are frustrated that roads and bridges are collapsing all over the place. Um, the inability to, you know, get something done in less than ten years in the permitting process. Uh, Diamond's quote, I have it right here, is that it took eight years to get a man on the moon, but now it could take decades to get a permits to build a new bridge. Yeah. So that's it's true, and it took eight years to get a man on the moon in the '60s. <laughs> so this is a, it's, that's definitely a problem. Um, he also mentioned uh, litigation. This is a stat that really still get, stood out to me. Um, in the U.S., litigation expenses as a percentage of GDP are 150% higher than the average developed nation. So, this is just so much of our time and money and is just tied up in you know legal costs. Um, he said we need to find, do some real legal reform to find a way to get rid of frivolous litigation, which is a big problem. Um, if you've seen some of the advertisements for lawyers, you probably know what I'm talking about. Sure. Um, but So it's it's just wasteful. Um, immigration policies are another one he pointed out, um, that for, uh, 40% of the students who come to the U.S. and obtain advanced degrees have no legal way to stay here. So we're effectively exporting
0: the knowledge that we're teaching people. Yeah, it seems to be just completely – the opposite of what we what we should be doing. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm with you. The one that stood out to me was uh, that that capricious and wasteful litigation system. I mean, to me, it's. I mean, you know, we we grew up watching The Simpsons, and I mean, back in the day, like Lionel Hutz was kind of the joke, right? I mean, that was the attorney who, you know, he, he could he would he would sue for anything. But it does feel like we've gotten to this point now where. I mean that is that is kind of the norm, and and anybody can basically come up and sue you for anything, and then you're stuck having to go through this awful system without any guarantee that that you're not going to be damaged in one way or another, either reputationally or financially or both, even if you didn't do anything wrong to begin with. So I I tend to agree. It seems like our litigation system has gotten way out of hand, and I, I don't know exactly how we fix that, but there's no question something has to be done.
2: No, it's definitely a, it's definitely a problem. It's clearly, all these are clearly identifiable problems that, that the solutions aren't that clear?
0: Yeah. Well, we're going to tweet out the link to your article on the uh, MF, the, the the industry focus uh, Twitter feed. So listeners, make sure you can follow us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus. You'll see Matt's article out there later this afternoon, uh, where he goes a little bit more into all eleven points there in regard to this uh, letter and, and what's holding economic growth back. Uh, very well written, Matt. I enjoyed reading it myself. Good job there. Thank you. Uh, okay, hey, so next up we wanted to talk about a listener question we got recently. This comes from Adam Wilson and actually Adam tweeted this to us. It was at Adam F Wilson 426 and he says, hi, love the shows and I'm a member. Thanks, Adam. Glad you love these shows, and thank you for being a member and trusting us with your uh, your financial independence there. I have a question about buybacks. I understand that it increases my ownership at a company, but being a retail investor, I own a very small percentage anyway. For example, I own about 80 percent shares of Starbucks. There are 1.243 billion shares outstanding. It doesn't make much difference to me that they buy back shares. It won't make a substantial difference in my ownership over the time I hold the company. Why are buybacks good for people like me?" And Matt, I think we have a a few thoughts regarding this matter. I'm going to let you kick it off here. What do you think about what Adam's saying?
2: You're correct in the sense that a buyback is never going to increase your percentage of ownership to a substantial level. For example, my Apple stock, Apple's buying back shares very aggressively right now. My ownership is never going to get to where I'm a you know significant stakeholder in Apple. Yeah, That's not the point. The point is that, over time, this will inherently make your shares more valuable. Um, for example, let's say a company is buying back 4% of its stock each year, which a lot of companies are doing in that ballpark. Over a two-decade period, they're going to buy back roughly half of their stock. So, by that, you know, by that logic, your shares will inherently be worth about t- double what they are right now, and that's not including any profit growth or things like that. Buybacks can also be a really tax-efficient way to get capital returned to you as a shareholder. If, um, <clears throat> let's say, a company was buying back your stock instead of giving you a dividend, you don't have to pay tax on that buyback until you sell. Whereas if you get a dividend from that company, you pay tax right away. Right. The other way is if a company can buy back stock for less than it's actually worth, which is kind of the the Buffett rule. Um, Warren Buffett just uh, modified, or Berkshire Hathaway just modified their buyback plan so that Buffett and Charlie Munger can buy back stock whenever they think it's trading at a discount, which is clearly an investor's best interest. This is like if a company were buying hundred dollar bills for ninety dollars. Of course, you want to be you'd want them to buy as much as possible. Sure. So from that standpoint, it definitely creates shareholder value. This is why I love the big bank buybacks that are have been going on. Like Wells Fargo is buying back like ten percent of its stock this year. Yep. Um, and it's great because if they're correct and it's in, it, it's intrinsic value is worth a lot more than it's trading for, then shareholders are making a lot of money in addition to the company's profitability. So. No, you're never going to be a uh, you know major stakeholder in Starbucks if you're starting with 80 shares. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't care about buybacks. There's are still a really great way for a company to return capital.
0: Yeah, I think. I mean, to your point there, it essentially is looking at it from the perspective that really all shares are created equal. I mean, whether you have one share or a million shares, I mean, every share is an equal unit. And, and, and to your point, I mean that that buyback over time in theory should shrink that share that share account, thereby making your shares in theory more valuable. I think that's that's one of the questions I always have with with buybacks. Is I mean the data out there is pretty clear that. More often than not, management teams kind of get share buybacks wrong, and and oftentimes they buy those shares back when when the stock is trading at these lofty multiples and everything is going you know going hunky dory so to speak. But then all of a sudden you know you know what hits the fan and then they start pulling up the purse strings there and nobody's buying back anything when that's actually when they should be buying back more stock. Uh, And so you you do have to pay attention to that. Understand that if. If they are buying those those shares back, you know, take a look at the balance sheet over time and see is that share count coming down over time? Because if it's not, that's a big problem. And so, you know, on the one hand, dividends, yeah, that's cash in the pocket. But to your point, you're going to pay a tax on that. Whereas shares, uh, you know, buying back shares and make those shares a little bit more more valuable over time, you won't pay the tax on that until you sell. Uh, So so you see the pluses and minuses for both. But but ultimately, I do think. I mean, the point to look at it in that every share really is the same unit, right? I mean, all shares are equal there in that regard. So whether you have 80 shares or 1 million and 80 shares, you're going to recognize some value uh, through those share repurchases, assuming that management is actually doing a good job in the repurchases to begin with. And again, that's not always a given. I think you have to approach these buybacks with a, at least a healthy dose of skepticism. Take a look and make sure that when they're making those those buybacks, that, that the share count is coming down over time. That's really one of the key points to look at. And you can find that information on the balance sheet over time. I like looking at stretches of five years, and you can really get an idea. How much are they spending on buybacks? How much has that share count come down? Doesn't make a little sense, uh, and that can give you the answer to how well the companies being managed. But very good question there, Adam. Appreciate you uh, firing it up here for us, and uh, hopefully we were able to give you some things to think about. Uh, okay, Matt, let's wrap this up. We've got one to watch, of course, for all of our listeners. What's your one to watch coming up this week?
2: I am watching GE General Electric. I have a pretty big position in my portfolio, and uh, they were just downgraded today by an analyst, and the stock dropped six or seven percent last I looked. And kind of the point I wanted to make with this, it's not necessarily about GE's business. We all know GE's problems. (laughs) The point is, yeah, there's there's no surprise. The point is that when an analyst downgrades it, when the problems are already known, an analyst downgrades it and it plunges, it can be a good buying opportunity. Because is GE's business worth 7% less than it was yesterday? No. (laughs) So, I'm considering adding to my position at this level. And it's just kind of a good. Like lesson to watch a few stocks after analyst downgrades because they generally, in my experience, anyways, shoot up, shoot right back up to where they were.
0: Yeah, it's fine. I think downgrades. I mean, typically, if you see one that's downgraded based on valuation, I think those are the ones you really need to pay attention to because they can oftentimes represent opportunities because valuation is as much art as is as it, as it is science. And, and I mean. Again, you know, valuation is more or less an opinion, and you know what they say about opinions, man. I'm not going to go over it here on the show, but I think a lot of people out there know what they say about opinions. Uh, I'm going to go with Amalgamated Bank. This week ticker is A M A L. And if you listened to last week's show, uh, you heard our interview with CEO Keith Mestrich uh amalgamated bank just a really interesting story here building america's socially responsible bank that's starting to resonate i think with a lot of listeners got a lot of positive feedback from this interview and uh you know it's just a small cap bank up in new york still a fairly small bank, total deposits of a little bit more than $4 billion, total assets of just under $5 billion. Uh, But but, I think that uh, based on what they're trying to do in in building this socially responsible bank, I think it's resonating on a a customer base that uh, is is really uh, liking uh, being being a partner of, of Amalgamated, and, and liking what that company, what that bank represents uh, for the future. I think that uh, socially responsible investing is something that's going to become more important to investors as time goes on here. And it seems like Amalgamated uh, is really helping blaze that trail, so to speak. So, if you didn't get to listen to that interview uh, from last week, go check it out. It was, uh, again, CEO Keith Mestrich. She had a lot of great things to say, uh, a lot of neat things we learned from speaking with Keith. So, we're very grateful to have had that chance. Uh, Matt, I think that wraps it up for us this week. You got anything else you wanna add?
2: No, I'm looking forward to seeing you guys in, in person next week.
0: That's right. That's right. You're gonna be here in studio. We're gonna knock out some interviews, we're gonna knock out some shows here. It's gonna be a lot of fun. We don't have to Skype you in. We'll be able to, you know, talk across the table from one another. So looking forward to getting you in here to travel safely, all right.
2: All right, I'll see you next week.
0: Okay, and as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel and Matt Cochran, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.